Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Heading into our season one finale here on the Red Tree Pod. Chris, it is, uh, it's always good to see you. Uh, we're crawling across the finish line. <laughs> Just- <laughs> we made it. We summer's made- here. Summer. Right. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to take just a, a little little hiatus here for the summer and yeah. kind of refresh the batteries and come back in the fall with season two of Red Tree Pod, Pod, Pod. Worldwide, I think is the <laughs> oh. new name. <laughs> I love it. Probably not. It got so big it all of a sudden. So wow. Yeah, we've, yeah, we're reaching uh, all the Baltics now. I don't yeah. know if you knew that. So streaming in the Baltics. Maybe Southern Canada. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> together. Right. But yeah, how are you on this fine season one finale day? Doing well. It is. Yeah, it's a great time of year. It's June. Uh, I have some graduations going on in the, in the Walker household. So I have a fifth grade graduation for my youngest daughter and, and an eighth grade graduation for my middle child, my son. So uh, changes for them, but also kind of also kind of sad, a little emotional. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go to those on Thursday, but it should be celebratory and fun. But man, it just it does make make you really yeah thankful for the years, but also man, they speed by. It's crazy. Um, but uh, made me think of Romans. I want to say Romans nine. I can't remember where Paul says this, but just that idea of how um, time is kind of like a friend. You know, that every day that goes by, we're one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. So uh, it's a lot easier for me, I think most people, but uh, I know for me to think that life was better when you're younger, when you have more strength and health or maybe more time in front of you or opportunity or whatever. But the Bible's different. The Bible thinks a bit differently about that. It kind of puts a spin on it and just says that actually getting older and getting weaker is a good thing. You know, um, one, because of grace, it, it shows you your weakness and it kind of makes you rely all the more on him. And mm-hmm. But two, it, it gets you closer to that, to crossing the threshold of that ultimate promised land that we're all kind of plotting ahead to. So. Yeah, time does always win. I mean, it, I, I think yeah. that's where grace becomes so much more compelling. The more life you've lived, the more failures you've encountered, the more coming to the end of the rope uh, moments you've experienced. That's when you're kind of like, man, I mm. think I need something better than the old way. So yeah, that's good. It's a good right. word, man. Yeah. How about you, Davis? Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of graduation, I, I finally graduated the seminaries. Hey, uh, so congratulations. Uh, it's, it's it's been a slog. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I started grad school together at the same time. She did a master's in uh, marriage and family therapy, and she finished three years ago. And so <laughs> it's just hard to look at those timelines and go, what happened here? Uh, but yeah, I felt like another undergrad just in terms of credit wise. And um, I think at the end of the day, I just look at you and I say, you, you, you can no longer call me just airhead. It's master airhead. Master airhead. So that's the, that's that, the hey, important call. As long as we're clear. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you let you let me know what you want to be called. Yes. <laughs> so speaking of hot air, let's let's comment on the Bible. <laughs> let's do it. Um, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 43, Psalm 109, continuing in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 5, the first 10 verses there. 
And then our but what about section is going to include the parable of the Good Samaritan. So to begin, we're looking at Isaiah 43. And uh, this is one of those places in Isaiah where we have this inbreaking of something new and better. And it uh, uses a lot of imagery that relies on the past to say it's something like this, but it's going to be grander. It's going to be like what happened when God rescued the Israelites at the Exodus, but it's going to be something so much bigger. I mean, it's like, and I'll use the 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 language of steroids a lot. Um, right, that must be a personal thing. You've taken a few. <laughs> Why few, do I always those. say steroids? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, even even the beginning there, the the language about um, Israel passing through the waters and God being with them. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Uh, it just harkens back to when the the waters themselves were parted and Israel was delivered by God's rescue, God's hand of salvation from the Egyptians. But Isaiah likes to look back on this and say, yeah, it's kind of like that. But man, this, this thing is going to be uh, a lot bigger. And, and, and a, it's going to be a type of rescue that we haven't yet seen. Um, and the verses 19 to 21 elaborate on how this is, it's like the old, but it's actually, it's new, it's different. Uh, it says this in verses 19 to 21, see, I am doing a new thing. This is uh, God's perspective. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, uh, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So a lot of this language having to do with uh, something new hitting the scene uh, demands that we go, well, well, clearly something wasn't working then. This old way then is being replaced by something new and better. And it's, uh, it's, mo- it's best captured by the fact that people are in the wilderness. People are in a desert-like situation relying on, a, on, on God for bringing a new form of water, a new form of, of help that's going to look like thirst uh, being quenched. Mm. And so, um, yeah, what, what, do you, what else would you want to comment a little bit more on? I think that's really helpful. Yeah, I think that that second Exodus motif is huge. And we, I know we've said that a lot in this podcast, but I, you know, I think that's one thing, one of the many things we're okay being repetitive on because it's such a big deal mm-hmm. uh, for the Bible to say that, that the Bible is a, a tale of two Exoduses and this next one is, is going to be on steroids associated with Jesus himself and, and coming against our sin and death in, in a cosmic manner. Uh, one thing that sticks out to me a lot in this passage, because it's... It seems like it's almost misplaced. It seems like, you know, on on the, uh, against the backdrop of a lot of comfort and promise here, the chapter ends in verse 28, uh, or actually the very uh, 27 and 28 by saying, those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. And so uh, it's it's an interesting thing. And, and God is a master at this, of course, it's his book and it's his story, but he's a master at showing how woven into the fabric of promise promise and blessing and future goodness is this hint of, of destruction or this hint of this also must happen to almost be the means by which uh, the, the dust settles, you could say, or the tidal wave comes through and everything's barren, but but then this little uh, burst of green growth comes up from the hard clay, but that, that tidal wave had to come first. And so, but it's an interesting thing to kind of curse the, the priests in verse 28. Uh, I think two things from that. One, what you 
you see in the prophets a lot is God saying a new thing's coming, but new implies there's an old thing, right? And that old thing was the old system, the old covenant, the law that didn't work, uh, didn't produce the fruit, uh, and it led to disobedience. It incited sin. And so uh, the, the priests who led in the temple and led this kind of cultic or uh, worship and sacrificial system for the, for the, for the ancient Israelites represent that. Mm-hmm. And so when God says, I disgraced it, I, I came against it. He's coming against what the law, uh, though good, was not able to produce. And it almost made things worse in many ways. And, and the prophets, again, are hitting on this time and time again uh, in, in, in the book. Now, right alongside that is you kind of twist the diamond in the light. I think also what verse 28 is saying is that in connection with this new exodus would come a, uh, would come a, a disgracing and a consigning to destruction of the ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest, which is Jesus Christ uh, himself. And so uh, we see that, of course, in the New Testament too, in Hebrews, and, and Jesus himself picks up on this, but he is the better priest, but the priest who would lay down his life. And with that laying down of the life, he would come to set a New Testament into motion. And so, and ultimately enact this new this new exodus. So uh, something can be both at once. In other words, when, we, when you read the prophets, you have, uh, th- this, um, th- this again, consigning to destruction of an old system, a calling out of the old ways uh, of, of a do this and then you will live uh, kind of covenant. But then Jesus himself too is kind of coming into that saying, the way that this is going to be done away with is by my body uh, being done away with. So he's the temple himself who's going to be destroyed and, and give way to that new burst of green growth uh, from the ground. And that that imagery then of a, a new thing breaking in, and especially Isaiah's choice words here of things like water in the wilderness or water in the in the wasteland, it, it is an invitation for us to kind of do a double click or take an inventory on our own lives and recognize those places that feel a lot like wilderness. Those yeah. those places where we feel like we're weary and we're we're just led to the end of our rope, and we're going, God, where are you? What are you doing? Uh, over and over again, we see this in the storyline of God as an invitation to reflect on our own lives, to go, where have I been in the driver's seat of my life? And it's it's created a wasteland. It's created a spiritual wilderness where I don't know up from down. I'm pursuing things that ultimately are leading to my own destruction. And this is why the inbreaking of grace is so important and so significant and why we, like we were just talking about with time, uh, it, it just shows up. Like your life eventually leads to wildernesses and wastelands as a, as an opportunity for us to stop and go, okay, I think I need to look up and look for this new thing. This thing that's springing forth from the ground, uh, opposed to my efforts that I've been trying to do for my own life. I, I saw this a lot uh, this year in the, uh, have you heard of Rob Delaney? He's a comedian. I have. He writes, yeah, he wrote the show Catastrophe on Amazon, which is, uh, I think, actually a pretty pretty amazing picture of marriage and its uh, brokenness and um, and, a, and just an honest look at, at all the ways that we, uh, what a married life can look like. And um, anyway, he, he actually lost his, uh, the third born um, of four, and wrote a memoir on it a few years later. And in, in, as he's getting interviewed this year about it, he, he kept using language. Uh, he's an outspoken atheist, but he kept using language that reflected Isaiah 43, this idea of something breaking forth in the wilderness in the midst of his grief uh, that feels almost otherworldly. And he, he even used, he said like, whatever this faith organ is, it feels like it's been growing. Um, the end of his book, I mean, he very, it's very much a diatribe against God and he still isn't a, a, in a place where he's ready to reflect on some of these bigger questions of who is Jesus and what's he doing. But 
it uh, it seems to be this principle playing out in his own life, and I and, and anyone who's experiencing that much grief actually becomes like a in a way like an Isaiah like figure. I think who's who who they're brought to the just the end of themselves, and they're just going, "What is the purpose of all of this?" And somehow um, water just seems to break forth in those moments, and so uh, it also reminds me at, at the end of the. Did you ever see the Mister Rogers movie? I did. Yeah, the the scene where the the dad of the main character is passing away and uh-huh. Mr. Rogers leans in and says, we don't hear what he says. There's like a whispering that happens. And then he comes outside and the main character says, what was that? What were you doing talking to my dad? What were you like saying to him? And Mr. Rogers says, I, I was actually asking him to pray for me. And the main character says, I, what do you, why would you do that? And he, and he just says, well, anybody who's suffering that much, God is just really close to them. There's just that new new thing motif that I think emerges from the ground yeah, of suffering. Love it. That I think is a, is an amazing picture here in Isaiah 43, and and draws us to the the, the water source himself, which mm. is very much uh, Jesus and and his choice imagery in the New Testament of come to me uh, and I'll, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you water, uh, living water for your soul. So with that in mind, let's uh, jump to Psalm 109. And and the with that in mind piece in, in particular is what you were talking about with um, kind of a, a force of anger directed to someone else. And because uh, Psalm 109 is going to be what's called an imprecatory psalm. And whenever I think of imprecatory psalms nowadays, I think of uh, kind of a, the post-Russia-Ukraine war world we live in now. Uh, when that war first started, I saw something on social media where someone uh, t- tweeted or Instagrammed very specifically and said, hey, Christians, stop with your imprecatory psalms, or if you're going to do them, be more specific because Putin the tiger just died. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, that was so good. But it, it drums up questions. What is an yeah. imprecatory psalm? Why is it here? And uh, yeah, what are we looking at when we're looking at Psalm 109? Yeah, so imprecatory kind of got at this, but it means to call down a curse, basically. So just for clarity, you know, some of the Psalms, um, yeah, have that flair, kind of have that bite to them. This is a Psalm of David as well. It's uh, too long to read in full, but we'll, we'll mention a couple things here. Um, but a Psalm of David, and it's basically a Psalm, like a number of his Psalms, where he is in trouble, he has enemies, he's surrounded, he is misunderstood, he's hated, uh, usually in, in in a kind of an unjust manner. Uh, and then he calls out for deliverance. And as sometimes he calls down though, it kind of in, 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 in the manner of doing that or the process of that calls down a curse upon his enemies. And so the, the middle chunk of the Psalm, which is a pretty big chunk actually, uh, consists of, uh, of that. Now what's interesting is, is you think as the question kind of where else in the Bible do you see this? Um, a couple things come up. One, uh, verse eight, where it says, "May speaking of his enemy, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, is actually quoted in Acts 120 uh, to reference when Judas was replaced by, by Matthias. And so, interesting how the early church read this psalm. They saw that David's sufferings and experiences were typical of Christ's, that really this was the song of the songbook of Jesus, his sufferings and him being rejected and betrayed by one of his friends, uh, by, by Judas. And then they looked at verse eight and said, well, this is kind of a promise, almost something we should do now is, is he should be replaced. And so there should be 12 apostles now, not just 11. So, so, you, so I think that's a, a helpful entry point into seeing this Psalm, not 
ultimately about David, but about Jesus. And then that then comes that big question, of course, though, of well, what what is Jesus called down a curse on? And you know, far from then this being something that we should you know implement and calling down curses on our political enemies or our tigers. enemies, tigers, definitely, <laughs> uh, or enemies at work or neighbors we don't like at all because they don't like how we mow our lawn or what time of day we mow our lawn on uh, at. Instead, this is actually kind of like we looked at with Isaiah 43. There's a spiritual target mm-hmm. and an end game to this. And that is that Jesus is calling down sin, uh, a, a curse rather, on sin and on death and on dark angels and on the and on the circumstance of sinners being separated from God. That's what he's ultimately kind of coming against, um, which is good news, right? That is actually a lot of grace in that then when we think about what in what manner is Jesus going to war for our benefit? Who is the ultimate, what's the ultimate problem in, in the world? And how is Jesus then attacking that in a way that doesn't crush us? Because the, the, the caveat is that part of the, part of the enemy or the problem is inside of us. And so he does that by becoming like us and dying in our place and taking actually on a curse himself uh, so that blessing might flow uh, to those who are cursed and to those who are who are his enemies. So there's a lot of, a lot of twisty and turny kind of scenic route takes here, right, with these psalms, but they all somehow end uh, with, with Christ and him crucified. Yeah, and I, I appreciate how this psalm uh, is, like many of David's psalms, it's just this kind of we get to see inside this guy's heart and mind and he is not holding back with God, um, which is, which is really important. And I think it's something that we as Christians can, can grow in. It's just like a, Hey, don't, don't sanitize your prayers. Let them be open before God say, say exactly what's on. He can, if anyone can handle it, it's him. And, uh, you certainly get that in, in the first 20 verses here of Psalm 109. And then what happens in Psalm, uh, or in verse 21, I think is really worth reflecting on because it has this kind of new Testamenty feel to it that after David has laid his heart bare and what he wants to happen to his enemies, he, it starts with this, uh, phrase, but you sovereign Lord. So in the midst of all the things that he's looking at in his life, he just stops and he goes, but you sovereign Lord, which sounds a lot like, uh, one, what we see in Psalm 22, where, uh, David interrupts and says, but you, uh, Lord are enthroned on high. And what the new Testament does a lot of times when it's looking at our very real and dire situation, and then just interrupts with this, but now, or, but God, uh, the Romans three, I think it is, is, but now apart from the law, righteousness has come from God through faith in the death of, of Jesus Christ. And so there is just this, like looking at your circumstances and then pausing and letting God be this release valve, this interruption, this uh, burden bearer for us in the midst of these things as we think on him and reflect and, and really just get our bearings in the midst of life's sufferings and not knowing up from down. It reminds me of, uh, I got to do a little hat tip to Ted Lasso because it just, the the show just ended. And uh, this reminded me of in season two, I think it is, they're, they're in the midst of kind of a a bumpy, uh, the, the, the soccer team is in the midst of a bumpy few games there and it, it, they just don't know if they're going to be able to get out of this rut. And Ted does what Ted does best, which is he just gets to the heart of people. And um, he, he uses rom com, uh, rom-coms as a, an example of kind of what life is. And he gives his, his players these bearings of like, you, you need to situate yourself well. And it kind of has this, but now where are we reality feel to it? And he says this, gentlemen, believing in rom-communism is all about believing that everything's going to work out in the end. 
Now, those uh, next few months might be tricky, but that's just because we're going through our dark forest. Fairy tales do not start, nor do they end in the dark forest. That son of a gun always shows up smack dab in the middle of the story, but it will all work out. Now, it may not work out how you think it will or how you hope it does, but believe me, it will all work out exactly as it's supposed to. Our job is to have zero expectations and just let go. Now, uh, Ted, Ted's commentary here, I think, is, is actually a pretty profound uh, arrow to what the gospel brings to us, which is, hey, you're not in the driver's seat. In, in fact, you're in the middle of a rom-com and, the, and you're experiencing this dark forest, but you need to know that God actually is sovereign. And ex- where we are right now is not how these things are going to end out. In fact, God is a God of intervention, and he's going to intervene in a way that actually allows rom-communism to somehow be true in the gospel. Like, it's that total uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien thing where Christianity, it's, it's, it's big mystery is that it's that fairy tale that actually became true. That mm-hmm. the, the creator, the author actually entered the story and made it all true for us. And so how much more is what Ted Lasso was saying in that scene true of all people who are in Christ that, Hey, it really is going to, it is going to turn out. And there's a rom communism button there by just going, but God, where, where is he right now? Where, what does it look mm. like to have a sovereign Lord in the mm. Lord who is in control of all things? Mm. Love that. And the, and the hope for Christian, the, the Christian hope then is unique in that it says that Christ came into that story ahead of us. Doesn't just say it's going to happen, you know, and that I'll be with you in it. He said, I'm actually going to take it on. And so it's my song too. It's my experience too. It's my darkness as well. And even more so than yours. And so even, even when you suffer, it's actually me in that moment. And I think of how, you know, um, when Jesus appeared to Paul, uh, when he was killing Christians and and imprisoning them, and he said, uh, Paul, why are you persecuting me? There's there's something about, you know, a Christian suffering or maybe a person broadly, but specifically a Christian suffering where Jesus says, I'm somehow in that. I'm so much the point of suffering. Uh, it's, it's it's like I'm the son of the solar system of all darkness and suffering. Somehow it's orbiting around me. I'm the reason it exists. Uh, it, and, and, and sin is the reason it exists, right? But it got, and God in his sovereignty is saying that I came into the world to suffer and bear a bear curse and to bear darkness. And even to, as Paul says, to become sin so that uh, so that we as as sinners might in him and what he does for us become the righteousness of, of God. So it's a greater hope than just a story and just something that God says will happen. Uh, to say that I too am going to go through it and I did it for you in in love. So everything's going to be okay. And looking back at that gospel reality, the thing that happened in history then allows us to to look ahead with a sense of hope. And that's what's going to be captured in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, We're going to be looking at these first 10 verses. And I just want to read at least the first three. It says this, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So a couple things here. One, uh, this is why we talk so much uh, with the Red Tree Project about the difference between human hands and God's hands. It's something that is a regular theme in scripture that is meant to draw us out of ourselves and our efforts that lead to wastelands and wildernesses and hopelessness, and instead to fix our eyes on the hands that can that, that have rebuilt all things, that, ha- that are remaking everything. Um, and Jesus Christ, the one 
the one uh, whose hands have holes in them, who, who actually are God's hands, he is making everything new. And so this is why we fix our eyes on what he's doing and not what we've done. Then there's also this imagery of, of being clothed versus being naked. And uh, this, this actually brings us all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible when we're told that sin first enters the world. And after seeing that, that Adam and Eve were naked and having no shame, it's pretty fascinating and, and worth, worth looking into as to why when sin first happens, their response is uh, to cover up and actually to sew fig leaves, to make clothing for themselves. Now, uh, this in, in the same way that the nakedness that had no shame was more than just physical nakedness, so too is their efforts at clothing themselves. To sow fig leaves was to actually believe that I, I can protect myself. I, I can cover the guilt and the shame that I'm experiencing that comes with sin. That serves as this uh, giant arrow to us to think about all of the ways that we are prone to cover ourselves. And this is why 2 Corinthians 5 is looking at this, that we're longing to be clothed and not being found naked. You know, like all of us have had that dream where we've showed up at school naked and there's just (laughs) instantly that feeling of embarrassment and needing to hide and I'm not okay. Now, this is more than just a, a physical embarrassment. This, the reason that we have that dream and why it's so terrible is because it's, you're getting actually really close to the, the heart of the storyline of what God is telling us, which is that you do need to be clothed. Like when, when God first responds to Adam and Eve, he doesn't say, hey, hey take, take those clothes off that you're making for yourself. You don't need to wear those. He, he says, you actually do need to be clothed, but not by clothing that has been sewn by your own hands. And then God kills the animal and covers them with skins as this picture of the fact that he is going to clothe us. And so Christianity becomes way more about us being clothed by God and not being stripped down to the bare bones of what we think we need, nor is it about us covering ourselves with our works or our efforts at any capacity. Um, it also it reminds me of um, Ed Clowney wrote a book called Christian Meditation uh, before he, he died and, and something that was really blowing up at the time when, when he was ministering was just Buddhist meditation and kind of the smorgasbord of mixing Christianity with whatever belief system was out there. And one of them was meditation, which was this effort of emptying your mind of all things. And, and Clowney's book was to say, no, no, that's not how Christianity works. Christianity is a filling of your mind. It's a putting on of clothing that isn't yours. It's a letting God cover you rather than you being found nothing or naked. And so uh, all of these things are just pointing to that, that picture of God doing a work. Yeah. My, my daughter actually, um, I think it might've been fifth grade, my oldest daughter. So years ago now had, uh, the class had a mindfulness time moment, which I think was just a time for teachers to gain their sanity back. Or something. And so they had the kids sit down and, and on mats or something, or just, just to try to get, be quiet, you know, for a few minutes. But I think they used the phrase, uh, empty your mind, you know, and it was kind of, uh, yeah, sort of Eastern a bit, you know, very kind of religious. They didn't intend that, I don't think, but it's not had, it, it smacked of that, you know, almost kind of a religious, like empty yourselves of things and things will then be better if you do this right kind of thing. So yeah, same thing. We had to t- kind of talk to our daughter and said, quiet is good. You know, I think, you know, a mindfulness time can be fine. Just as Christians, we, 
we, we come at it differently. You know, like Paul says in Philippians four, uh, think about things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely. And all those things are things that could describe Christ, you could say, or the gospel or, or new Testament beauty and truth, like fill your mind with scripture. You're reading at home with your parents and, and, and at church and think about those things. Cause we need that as a lot of theologians have said before and, and say today, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, not from, from within. So I want to turn also to uh, verse 10. Uh, the passage ends with a kind of a tricky, uh, tricky verse. So I'll just read it first. Uh, he says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so when, when we read judgment passages like this, it can come, of course, with fear, maybe some questions too, for those like us who like to centralize grace and see how actually works language takes much more of a backseat uh, as, as the law does in the Bible. And so we think about judgment. Um, how does that fit? How does that fit with like, you know, uh, the law used to remind us of sin, Hebrew says, but now that's gone away. And, and, and now we have in its place this uh, almost forgetfulness of God where he doesn't remember our sin anymore. And yet here, it seems to be like, it seems to be like being put on front front and center stage, right? Like all that we've done in life, whether whether good or bad. So it's a tricky passage. And I think like what, what helps is to get our bearings from elsewhere in the New Testament. I won't like cite a bunch of stuff here for time's sake, but just to say that when you see warnings come up in the Bible, it's it's in the New Testament rather, it's it's anchored on what you're doing with Christ always. It's it, have you truly believed in him? Are you clinging to him for dear life or to something that has more to do with the works of your hands, like you just referenced before, because Paul's hope here in context is that uh, there's a future and it's a, it's a home, it's a spiritual place of dwelling that is not built by what we do. And so uh, are we letting go of, uh, of our works and, and clinging more to the work of Christ? I think that's, that's the ultimate warning I think you get in scripture. I was reading some of Origen who lived in the second century he said, I think it was about this passage or something similar. He said, uh, for which of you, when the scriptures are read, really pays attention. God through the prophet threatens, indeed, even in anger, I will send famine upon the earth, not a famine of bread or the thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the word of God. Again, he's referencing uh, Old Testament times. But then he says, but now God has not sent a famine upon his church, nor a thirst to hear the word of God. For we have living bread, which came down from heaven. We have living water springing up to eternal life. So then he asks, why in this time of fruitfulness do we destroy ourselves by famine and thirst? It is the mark of a lazy and lingering soul to suffer want in all this abundance. And so if I were to put words to what he's saying there, I think, and in connection with uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I think he's saying that in Christ, all famines have come to an end. He says, feast, not fast. There, there is an abundance of life in Jesus for us all. And to those uh, who are Christians, the, the question is, are we lazily living underneath it? Are we taking it for granted? Is it, uh, is it truly shaping us into love uh, into, uh, towards other people, especially our brothers and sisters in the faith? Um, or is it something that we're embracing, that, that we're gorging ourselves uh, on the grace of God? Um, so uh, to put it this way, uh, I could say, don't fast from the gospel. 
I think is kind of what he's saying. I think Paul, the spirit of his letter here, but then to, to, to save us from being driven to despair uh, on these judgment passages, I think if we're in Christ, we're okay. And we don't have to fear things being put out in front of us or, or, or being exposed because God is like a cover. He's a blanket, like you just talked about. He's a robe covering up. He's not uh, one that is going to uh, lead us to exposure uh, in the end. Mm. Well, let's uh, round out here with our But What About section, and we're going to be looking at the Good Samaritan parable. Now, uh, the reason we want to do this one is because I think whenever the Good Samaritan comes up, there's at least someone in the room who kind of thinks that this story is basically a, a nice moral tale about why we should be nice to everyone. Uh, and it's it's not a bad idea to be nice to people, but I think Jesus had a much broader and bigger mission uh, that involved changing uh, dead hearts into hearts that were alive, and he was always he was always trying to show that 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 deadness exists for all of us. And so, as as good as be nice to everyone is as advice, it isn't going to wake up a dead heart. And so, uh, I think as we're trying to get to the heart of what the Good Samaritan story is, we first need to understand the context. Like, when, who is Jesus telling this to? Like, what was what was happening? Why is he telling the story? And then, two, slowing down on some of the details of the story. So, for the first, the context is him actually in answering a question from somebody who's who's straight up just said what what do i actually need to do to be saved that's the context of the good samaritan story it's a small question yeah it's a, it's a really uh it's it, it's easy to gloss over the fact that the 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 answer of of this parable the story of the good samaritan is actually in response to somebody saying what must i do to be saved and jesus's first response is well what's written in the law how do you read it and basically the the guy says well love god and love people love your neighbor as yourself and jesus says you are correct if you do this you will live you will have eternal life if you actually obey the law of loving god and and loving people and then it says seeking to justify himself the man asked jesus and who is my neighbor and so this is the context of jesus now telling this parable and it's just worth zooming out and going, okay, so this story is probably way bigger than just a moral ethic. This story is God, is God himself putting the pieces of the Bible together because he's bringing up this law and saying, how do you actually, how do you read it? And then the guy gets the answer correct. But then Jesus, Jesus kind of allows this guy's heart to be on full display that the law produces this, this need to justify ourselves. And it also, uh, uh, it also showcases uh, the, the failing points of our heart and our lives, like this guy who had a prejudice against certain types of people. And so Jesus tells this parable, and, and this is the details of the story. Jesus is describing a man who went on a walk, but then he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Then we're told that two people walk by and don't do anything. The first is a priest, the second is a Levite, and then the, there's a third person who is a Samaritan, travels along, sees the man, takes pity on him, actually has compassion, and then bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he even takes him and puts him on his own donkey, brings him to an inn to take care of him, and pays for the guy's stay and says, uh, look after this guy. When I return, I will reimburse you for whatever extra expense you may have. And that's when Jesus kind of slows down and says, now, which, which of these three... Um, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And it says, the expert in the law reply, replied, the one who had mercy on him. This is when we're told, go and do likewise. So it's a picture of enemy love that is uh, significant for us, a Samaritan helping this man. 
Um, and it's also failure of, of the, the first two individuals who walked by doing all these sweet religious things for God, but they didn't actually see a man who was suffering. Uh, but before it says anything to us about going and doing likewise in our own strength, the imagery is meant to slow us down and go, wait, wait, wait. I think I've seen this story before, especially on this side of the cross. I think I've seen the story of somebody who has been beaten, left for dead, and in great need of compassion from somebody who's able to offer help. Uh, namely, where we are in the story is this individual. Sin has devastated us, beaten us up, left us naked in the street, half dead, uh, or fully dead spiritually, and we are in great need of help. And then the law comes along and is unable to offer us assistance. It only points that finger like what we heard in the Psalm today and even in Isaiah. And then there is one who comes and sees us. He takes compassion on us, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes us, who he, and he offers healing and protection and comfort for us, specifically by taking on our state, right? Like the, the thing that happens here is that, and this is kind of more in the white space of the story, but how does Jesus offer us this healing? Jesus actually substitutes himself as the one who was beaten and left for dead and, and beaten up by these, these robbers so that we might be healed, that we might be cared for. And the more that this settles into our bones, the more we're going to be able to do the impossible task of loving our enemies. So when we're hearing go and do likewise, Jesus is being, he's doing what he does best, which is to slow you down and go, do, do you understand the failure of the first thing? This is the new thing. This is the water in the wasteland. One who came, who doesn't look like you and me, who did perfectly what we didn't. And that actually looks most like compassion on the broken and the, the left for dead, the beaten up on the roads, namely us. Mm, love that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm struck to you by, this isn't just random stuff, right? This is intentional. Like when, when Jesus says a priest and a Levite came by, it could have been anybody, right? But, but those two represent law, like you were saying. And I think, you know, when, when you, when you see that in the story, um, it, to me, it just, it, it says a lot, but I think one thing is just that the law does the bare minimum at best. It's almost like when we live our lives by law, we're just trying to check boxes and do only what we have to. It's kind of the question the guy's asking too, I think is, well, who's my neighbor seeking to self-justify? Like, well, have I done this? And I, and, and just give me the one thing I need to do and, and, and then I'll be okay. And Jesus pokes back by basically saying, no one's done this. Who does this? Like who lives this way? Who goes above and beyond for an enemy, even a stranger, like Samaritans and Jews were not exactly uh, cozy individuals uh, relationally this time of history. So um, it definitely screams Christ. It screams his substitutionary atonement. Uh, it screams that I think salvation had to come apart from law. It had to come apart from a Levites. It had to come apart from the priesthood. It had to come apart from just love God, love, love people. It had to come apart from do this and then you will live. It had to come from a Samaritan-like individual that was outside the Levitical priesthood, outside even just Judaism proper. I mean, these were half-breeds, Samaritans were, you know? And so like Jesus is saying, you needed God himself to come down uh, as a Jew, but also as the son of God himself to be that bridge between sinners and, and those who failed to keep God's law uh, and God himself, the Holy One, the only one who was holy. And he had to be a different kind of bridge, uh, one who would take the blows himself uh, so that we might uh, be comforted. Thanks for joining us. 
You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod. Thank you.